All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckadelics? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. How's it going? Are you okay? Did you get through the Christmas and the Kwanzaa and the Hanukkah? Did you get through whatever you went through? You all right? I, d- I don't know what to tell you. I, you know, I, I, uh, I was in New York and I had a nice time. I think the last time I talked to you, I was uh, in the city, in the hotel room. But I hadn't done a lot yet. I, had, I did one thing. I did one thing when I last talked to you and I was uh, a little bit uh, cagey about it. Non, uh, non-disclosing. But uh, I will tell you now because on Monday, our first WTF of the new year, I will share a about an hour-long conversation I had with the boss, with the Bruce, with the Springsteen out there in Jersey. Uh, hung out with him at his place, not actually in the house, but out in the uh, in the studio uh, building, uh, stable-looking building. Looks like a stable, but it's a studio. And I talked to Bruce. So that's going to happen on Monday. I thought I'd tease that out of the gate for those of you who are listening on the downtime or, or those of you who uh, listen no matter what, even though you may not know who David Bromberg is. I, I would imagine that's fairly common. I'm not saying that in a negative way about David, but I barely knew who he was. I'll explain to you what happened with that and why it happened. But okay, so New York City. What? It's amazing. I was there. Over Christmas, it was nice. It was quiet. The weather was pleasant. It wasn't chaos. The emperor incoming is was out of town. So uh, traffic was reasonable. People were nice. I tell you, man, the one thing I noticed when I was walking around New York was, of course, just all the different kinds of people. Oh, everybody in the streets enjoying themselves, walking through the streets, all is one in New York City in a lot of ways. And, and all the two, it just, I kept walking down streets thinking like, how is this bad? How is all this diversity bad? How is all this, how are all these different kind of people not adding something interesting and unique and proactive to the, to the world and the country we live in? How is this intersection and community of people, all different kinds of people moving through the streets in New York, not a beautiful thing. Then I started thinking about so many of the places that voted against tolerance, that voted against uh, diversity, and where they live, and, and they don't even have the level of diversity that, that that you see in New York. I don't know what, it, I don't understand it. It was so nice to eat at places like Mogador and just be you know, in a packed little restaurant with people from all over the world speaking all different kinds of languages and just thinking like, this is amazing. This is this is how it's supposed to work. And then th- then it all comes raining down on my head again. What the hell is going on? Do you know what I mean? Of course you know what I mean. Of course you do. I mean, look, I hope all of you out there had a comforting holiday as comforting and nice as possible. But you know, it's just hard not to be pensive. I mean, we should be pensive. It's it's just we've entered this this time where we don't know what's real and what isn't. And we only have our own perception to rely on. And how we load up that perception, that's on us. How we want to inform ourselves, what sources we draw from, what our, 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 what, our, what our priorities and beliefs are and how we buttress or question those priorities and beliefs. Do we detach entirely thinking that focusing on our own business and life in the most morally responsible way possible is enough to be proactive? I mean, we have lives, right? But it, it just might not be enough. 
because we have to be morally responsible citizens of a country we still believe in. We have to believe and we have to push back against an avalanche of anti-democratic psychological brutalization on all fronts, soon to be government sanctioned. And obviously some of it was before too, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, we can't buckle and be defeatist and we can't have blinders on which is a drag because there are some really great blinder options out there i mean you can get all of them all the blinder options you want on the internet they're, they're, all, all different types of blinders are available bottom line is we might actually have to get involved get our hands dirty and help others in a real way i mean i me too i'm talking about me I'm not saying any of this in a condescending way. I think about what I need to do all the time. That's what I've been doing during this downtime. I have to stop thinking and start doing things. I can't think that talking about this in a broad and vague way is actually doing something. I can't think that yammering on. But yeah, it is. I guess it kind of is. But I know there's more I can do. And I'm just like trying to figure it out. Get clear on what that might be. And I hope you are too over these holidays. It's easy to get overwhelmed and terrified and hopeless, and then that becomes debilitating and can provoke a depressive state, and then then that depressive state becomes the focus, the bleak feelings of dread. They are not the pathology. The events you are reacting to are pathological. Your brain and body are doing the appropriate thing, and we need to relieve it by coming together. We cannot let a fucking half a nationwide gaslighting event stop us from keeping our brains and our sense of fucking focus and what is right and wrong god damn it all right but all that said i hope you i hope you uh got some cool presents i hope you ate some good things i hope you don't feel too bad about yourself as we enter this new year there are enough external things to feel bad about let yourself off the hook a bit with your interior attacks if you are waging those battles against you let's externalize them my friends use that critical energy for things that need to be criticized that aren't you myself involved correct-minded people friends countrymen so new york city outstanding time i saw i ate at mogador i ate at butter i got in touch with alex gornicelli who i've had on this show and that's her restaurant i went there with uh, sarah and her friend iris and then uh, where else I, I ate at veselka of course i got a slice at joe's pizza of course and i went and saw othello this new production uh that is that is on now by the the guy who directed it is sam gold He's the guy that directs Annie Baker's shows. And in the show was Daniel Craig. You know, he was James Bond, wasn't he? And David Oyelowo. I hope I'm pronouncing that. The guy from Selma. And uh, it was pretty amazing because I can't handle Shakespeare because I can't follow it. My eyes just peel back and I get lost pretty quickly. But this was a... It was a very upfront production. It was at the um, the New York Theater Workshop, so you're right on top of it. The entire set and theater was covered in plywood. It was taking place in what was a an army barracks, a contemporary army barracks. It was very broadly lit. The entire space was lit up for a lot of the show, except when other effects came into hand. The, you could see the actors spitting and talking, and uh, I could follow it. 
I could follow the story. And I was so proud of myself. I was like, I know what's happening. I knew the basic story going in because I wikied it. And I just, I, I was able to follow it for the most part and, and parse the language properly. And it was very exciting for me. And that was no easy task because I didn't realize it at the beginning of the play, but towards the middle, I realized, holy shit, I knew I recognized the guy in front of me because at intermission, I saw Frances McDormand, who is... Uh, who was there, and she was with the guy, and I'm like, oh, shit, that's Frances McDormand and her Cohen brother. They're married. So they were sitting in front of me, and directly across from me was Rachel Weiss. Weiss? Is it Weiss? Whatever, I like her. She's a good actress, but I guess she's married to Daniel Craig, but she was sitting, like, directly across from me, so I had those distractions. Cohen brother, Frances McDormand, Rachel Weiss, directly across from me, and Othello happening in between us. And I stayed on the Othello, occasionally glancing at the side of, I believe it's uh, Joel Cohen's head, and asked myself, what's happening in there? How is the Cohen brother processing Othello? Uh, with Frances, I thought, like, well, she's an actress. She's watching the acting. She's enjoying the Shakespeare because she knows Shakespeare and she appreciates it. And she's doing that way. But what is the Cohen brother doing? What? How is he framing it? How is it? How is it entering his perception? How is he boxing Othello? Is it provoking things? Is he thinking of other things? Oh, and I saw this amazing show at the new Metropolitan Museum of Art Extension, I guess it would be. It's the old Whitney, which I have a, a, a lot of childhood memories at, going to the Whitney with my mother, seeing James Calder's circus sitting right there in the foyer. But it's now uh, the Brewer uh, Metropolitan Museum. And they had, Sarah wanted to see this uh, Carrie James Marshall a retrospective which was probably the high point of my trip to new york if you're going to new york if you live in new york go see that before it goes away these spectacular large canvases small canvases it's a whole retrospective of a man he's still alive he's an la artist primarily african-american themes but so many layers and so many different um stylistic elements to each painting and so powerful very socially conscious a very sort of uh, gut and brain punching work and uh, solid. And it's a big retrospective and it just blew my fucking mind. And that's why you go to New York to, to engage in, in a media culture and enjoy the diversity around you and the, the miracle of New York City and then go and see some actual shit and get kicked in the fucking head with some fucking culture. That's how they say it. Get kicked in the head with culture. NYC. Christmas morning was very quiet at the hotel I was staying at. I went down to uh, to do some writing. And there was a guy. Um, there was a guy there. He's the only other guy in the lobby. And he's wearing headphones. And they were. I could hear the music from the headphones filtering out. Which is not a pet peeve of mine. But it can be annoying. And I was like, nah, fuck. I'm trying to think. And now I got to listen to what that guy's listening to but you know in a very kind of uh broken up way probably in the worst way possible but i listen i'm listening closer and i'd recognize that tune it was some uh early tom waits stuff just you know i heard tom waits just you know flemily shouting out of this guy's ear phone one side of his headset one side of his bose noise reductions was uh, squawking out some early weights. But I, I did recognize it. I don't remember what it was right now. And I was annoyed. 
And then I remembered that Tom Waits once at, was asked, what's his favorite kind of music? And he said, an AM radio across the street. And I'm like, well, that's exactly what that sounds like. So I'm going to appreciate Waits as he would appreciate his favorite music. Just for across three tables coming out of the side of a guy's head. Still annoying. So my guest today, David Bromberg. David Bromberg is a guitar player and multi-instrumentalist, but he was, uh, years ago, I had this record that I inherited from somewhere when I was in junior high that I got a big bunch of records from my aunt's house, and one of them had a sketch of a guy playing guitar on, on front, just really, just a line drawing, and it was a David Bromberg album. And I remember trying to listen to it, but I just couldn't lock in. It was a little folky, a little laid back, uh, uh, you know, and I just couldn't get into it, but I, I never forgot the record. And then some from somewhere, I got the new David Bromberg record in the mail. This is like some 30, 40 years later, and I'm like, this guy is still at it. What's his story? He did a lot of sessions work. He, he was a, he, he was involved with the Dead, with the band, with uh, Ron M. U. Harris in uh, New York. I I just you know I I get I get nostalgic for an era that I missed, and I'm like I want to talk to that guy. So I, I I found him and I talked to him, and he's got a new record out, the blues, the whole blues, and nothing but the blues. You can get that wherever you get music. It's a straight up kind of blues record all different styles of blues uh david bronberg is a very earnest guy and a very earnest player and uh he took like a 20-year hiatus to 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 learn about something else which i found fascinating so i here now is me and david bronberg Of all the guitars I owned, yeah. I, I kept one. Which one? An Esquire from 1958. Really? Yeah, and, and, and if I lose that, my career's over. So you're a Fender guy? Oh, yeah. All the way back. No yeah. Gibsons? No, uh, I had a few Gibson Electrics. Yeah. Too many knobs. Yeah. <laughs> you just want two knobs. Just yeah. two knobs and the switch. Hell, <laughs> one, you know, volume tone. Yeah. What the hell do you need? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I listen to the new record and it's it's old blues tunes, right? Yeah. But you mix it up. I mean, you do acoustic and then you get, you know, you get dirty with it, and you know, and then you you do the whole the whole spectrum. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's two guitar players on uh, on there. You know, uh, Mark Cosgrove, a brilliant guitar player. You can, yeah. You can tell him he's got a beautiful, sweet sound. Yeah. Mine is the nasty sound. That's yeah. me. And you like nasty? Was that always? Was, did you evolve into that? Because your earlier stuff isn't nasty, is it? Uh, no, I, I guess not. I, I used to play more off the uh, uh, neck pickup of yeah. the same guitar. Right. Now I play mostly off the... So it has the bite to it. Yeah. So, um, you know, going back to that, like, here's a, the weird story about a couple things happened when I saw that you you were around, is that I had, when I was a kid, I'm 53, and I'd somehow inherited a stack of records, uh-huh. and your first record was in there, the uh-huh. first one, the one with the sketch on front. Yeah. And I remember as a kid who was in high school listening to Towny Rock and some blues and stuff, I couldn't quite, you know, lock into it. But I kept it, and it was always just there, that uh-huh. sketch of you, you know, demanding, like, why, what, what, why can't I get this, you know? Because uh-huh. I think it was just a little too, a little too laid back for me. I was, a, uh-huh. you know, a kind of an amped kid. And then, uh, you know, then I get this new record that you put out, and then I got to go back, and I'm like, I, I know this guy's a 
he's the, the real thing, this guy, and I got to get it. And then I listened to the new record, and I ended up playing it like six or seven times, playing it along with that. I went back to the old records and like kind of regrouped around it. And I knew you would play it on a lot of records. And then I get this other stack of records recently, and for some reason I pull uh derringer's record all american boy rick derringer's record <laughs> yeah, yeah. and i'm poking around researching you and you're like you're on that record and yep. i'm like what the fuck is happening but the thing that that, that fascinates me about uh, you and and guys of uh uh you know your ilk is that you were really there at that transition where that first you know people like you were a kid i imagine when you first started hearing those original blues records because i just i just watched a documentary that involved the story of uh what's his name uh the guy who went down and found uh or, or tried to find sun house uh-huh and it dawned on me that i didn't really realize that that generation and that's like in the mid-60s that those guys were just sort of these voices on records that didn't exist on the real plane in a way and that was sort of where you were coming from wasn't it Kind of, uh, except I was very lucky. I mean, I was a student of Reverend Gary Davis's. Yeah. Uh, I was, uh, you know. Where'd you find him? Like, where'd you grow up? I grew up in uh, Westchester County. In New York. Yeah. And, uh, but I found the Reverend when I was going to college, and I'm walking down Bleecker Street. And Where'd uh, you go to college? Columbia. Okay. And what were you studying? I was only there for a year and a half. Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> the music I, on, got you. I'm on a leave of absence. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they'll take me back. Yeah. But, yeah. You could try. They <laughs> might. They might offer you a job. <laughs> All right. So you're walking down Bleecker Street. What year are we talking? Uh, must have been in the 60s, uh, mid to late 60s. And you're like 20. Yeah. Yeah. Something okay. like that. And, and what happened? So, you're- so there's a sandwich sign out in front of a place called the Dragon's Den. It said, Reverend Gary Davis here this afternoon. It was the middle of the afternoon. And you knew who he was. I knew because I'd, I'd, I'd heard, I'd already gotten a record of his. Yeah, uh, like a 78? No, I, there was a record that he had half of and Pink Anderson had half mm-hmm. of. And and I had that and it was a wonderful record. So, yeah. So I went in and listened. And, and, and Was there it, anyone there? There were a few people there. Yeah. And it was great. Yeah. I, I mean, it was unbelievable. And he must have been in his 60s? Yeah, uh-huh. and I went up to him after, and I, I, I asked him if he'd give me lessons, and he said, yes, uh, $5, bring the money, honey. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> that was a reverend, yeah. and that's that's how it started. After a while, instead of $5, I'd lead him around. Yeah. but um, What do you mean? He needed help? He was blind. He was always blind. He was. There was another no. blind one, too, a Blind Lemon, what was that guy? Blind Lemon Jefferson. Jefferson. There was also Blind Blake. Who and was Blind the, Fuller? What was Blind uh, Boy Fuller, blind who was boy a Fuller? student of Reverend Gary Davis's. Also. Yeah. So what was Reverend Gary Davis's history? He was a multi-instrumentalist, right? Like he played yeah. a few things. Yeah, but mostly guitar. Uh-huh. Slide? Yeah. No slide. Picker. He could play slide. He just didn't bother with it very much. Did you find, you know, in studying this and working with these guys, that there was a distinct difference in between those regions in terms of, of the music that was being played? Well, the Reverend was just about unique. Mm-hmm. Some of Blind Boy Fuller's stuff sounds like the Reverend. Uh-huh. And that's the only recorded stuff that I've heard that really sounds like the Reverend. And the only other guitar player that the Reverend would speak of complimentary was Blind Blake, who was another phenomenon. Yeah. And and, and the Reverend used to say, you know, on, on record, there's nobody could beat Blind Blake. And that, you know, he didn't have anything good to say about anybody else. Really? Yeah. Very competitive? Or just uh, critical? Uh, he was a whole lot better than everybody else. Uh-huh. So. And what did you learn from him? 
I mean, like, what did he show you? Were these open tunings? What were you working with? No, it wasn't open tuning stuff. Yeah. Uh, um, five finger chords, and I do mean five finger chords. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the thumb over the edge. Uh-huh. And, and these, uh, but- And you still use those? Yeah. Yeah. And um, when I started with him, I was playing with three fingers, and uh, he only used two, and I figured, well, I can do much more. What, picking? Yeah. Really, he's one of those two-finger guys. Guy talking to Matt Sweeney about this. The two-finger thing is really big in the blues, and I just started hearing about it. Well, I thought that, that three fingers would be better, and after a while, I discovered it, it isn't. Why? Uh, for what he does. Yeah. For what the Reverend does, because he would do these rolls that were really syncopated, uh-huh. and when you just did them like this with either double finger or double thumb, right. you got a great sound. So it's a unique sound. Yeah. If you want to play a certain way, you use three fingers. But if you want to have that sound, you play two. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. I mean, he did things that I can't really duplicate. He used to pick every single note mm-hmm. with his first finger. And some of that stuff was real fast. How he did that is beyond me, but he did it. Really? So yeah. just running up the strings? Yeah. Moving up, moving down, moving yeah. up those top three, three strings, yeah. one finger. Yeah, he was amazing. All right, so now you're down the village. You're taking lessons from Reverend Garrett Davis. You're in Columbia studying what? The lessons were in the Bronx to begin. Oh, that's where he lived? Well, when I first met him, he was living in a uh, a little hut, a shack that was in between two, two large buildings. And then um, at a certain point, um, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary recorded his, his version of uh, Samson and Delilah. Oh, yeah. And they got him to copyright it. And and he moved to a little house in a nice neighborhood in Queens. Oh, so they they uh, they did the right thing. They sure did the right thing. And it be, and it was on one of their big selling records. Yeah. And it took it, it got him out of the yeah the garbage. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, it was. Well, they're not necessarily you wouldn't call them blues people, blues men. No. Peter Paul and Mary. No, but they had big ears, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very interesting to me that there was the you know just a few. Um, Kind of like young Jewish dudes that really, you know, you know, took to the blues and 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 became real bluesmen. There, there were a lot of us, right? Yeah, like Bloomfield. Yeah, did you know Mike? I met him once, and we played together once. How did you like his playing? Oh, he was great. Because I know a lot of Jewish guys that that you know love the blues, and they're certainly part of the the history of of sort of resurrecting the blues on on, on record. And in finding blues guys and whatnot, do you think there's a connection between being Jewish and the blues music? Blues. Bob Dylan. There's another good example. Yeah. yeah. Blues is soulful and, yeah. and full of irony. Yeah. So there you go. There Maybe. There you go. Were you brought up religious? No. No? No. Just kind of, you it, know. Anything but religious. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. At Pesach, my father would always say, this God must be a very insecure creature to require so much constant praise. <laughs> <laughs> what did he do? He was a shrink. Oh, he was? And he was a psychiatrist. In the city? First in the city, and then he moved it out to Tarrytown, where we, where we lived. And what were you studying when you went to Columbia? I thought I was going to be a musicologist, because what I wanted to do was play music, but yeah. the, but I wasn't supposed to. I was supposed to be, you know, something white collar. Yeah. What, what, what is the job of a musicologist? Damned if I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you sort of are one now. Well, musicologists study different aspects of music. I mean, some of them study construction. Some of them study composers. Some of them study uh, cultures. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. 
So when you when you start taking lessons with with the the Reverend, this must have been like you know a, a, an amazing sort of strange and beautiful opportunity that you, you know you you knew you were integrating yourself into part of history in a way. I, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. I, I just knew I was learning some great guitar shit. From, but you knew he was like the real deal. Oh, yes. Like he wasn't like some more back of the music store guitar teacher. You knew you were, you were being, there was a legacy. You were being passed along some very specific historical wisdom. This is, it's true that, it was, that it, I was being passed some historical wisdom, but I, I really, you know, I'm, I'm not that bright. And I, I didn't see it as, <laughs> uh, in, in that way at all. All I knew was that I was learning to play some stuff that very few other people on the planet could play. Okay, and it was blues specifically, and that was the music you loved. No, it wasn't blues. No? The Reverend would not play blues in public. Uh-huh. He played uh, religious tunes. Uh-huh. And what a lot of people miss is that... Um, you know who Blind Willie Johnson was. Yeah. Uh, he sang only religious tunes. Right. And you know who Bessie Smith was. Yeah. Yeah. When they pressed albums of Bessie Smith and uh, Blind Willie Johnson, they would press twice as many of Blind Willie Johnson's because he sold twice as much. Because of the religious songs. The religious songs sold much better than blues. Well, Sam Cooke was in the Soul Stirrers for years. Yeah. And he, like, I mean, gospel music is, is inter it's connected. I mean, yeah. that's it, right? And it was always connected, religious music, yeah. spiritual music. But the point is that in, in the community, that the, uh, uh, the African-American community of the 30s even, yeah. uh, also, you know, much later, I'm sure, the people weren't listening to the blues. They were listening to religious music and sermons, recorded mm -hmm. sermons. Was he a, a good preacher? The Reverend? Yeah. He was, but he had a pretty thick accent, and I couldn't always understand him. Yeah. One night, um, uh, one night, Stefan Grossman, who was maybe his closest student, was doing a concert in the village, and I was playing at uh, the Gaslight down the basement. Yeah, and uh, the I didn't know it, but the Reverend went to hear Stefan, and then I saw him when I came on stage, sitting out in the audience. So I played one of his tunes, and I played one of mine, and dedicated it to him, and he stood up and gave a sermon. And it started, um, I have no children, but I have sons. And boy, man, that was, that was just a great thing for me. Uh, <laughs> it's moving. So before you even started to take lessons from, from the Reverend, you, you were playing yeah. out in the village in 19... No, I don't think I was playing out. Yet. No, no. But you were noodling around. Yeah, I was playing. Yeah. I started playing when I was 13. And what was your music at that point? Like, what'd you like? Was it all, always folk music and blues music? No, it was whatever I heard. That, uh, right. You, you know, I liked everything on the radio, and that's how I started playing, you know, three, four chords, yeah. uh, what was on the radio. But were you ever in a rock band in high school or anything? I wasn't in a rock band, no. no? I was in a folk band. Yeah. Yeah. Folk was a big thing. It was a big thing. It's hard to imagine. Like, did, did you see the movie, the, the Lewin Davis, the Cullen Brothers movie? No. You didn't? No, I didn't, because Terry Thal, who had been, uh, who, who was Dave Van Ronk's wife, uh -huh. uh, said that she saw it, and I know Terry, and I, I trust her. Yeah. And she said what disappointed her was there was no joy in it, and that they missed all the joy that we all took in playing the music. Huh. And I figured, then there's nothing in it for me. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, if I think about it, that's sort of true. It is sort of a dark tale in a way. And they missed that. 
you know, they got a lot of things right. But according to Terry, I, I mean, I, I can't say firsthand, but I, I believe that they, they missed. That's why we did it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were having a ball. But it was before you when it started. You started the folk thing started actually before it. It wasn't political in nature to begin with. Oh yes, it was. It was. It very definitely was. And who were the leaders of it? Who were the inspirations? Like Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. Yeah. And uh, and that was the first generation. That I mean, those were the guys before you. Well, before them, there was actually Carl Sandburg and a guy named John Jacob Niles. There were you Carl know, Sandburg, the poet. Yeah. Uh huh. But the the popularization of the 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 folk music and the working man's folk. Yeah. Then music. it was Lead Belly, Pete Seeger. Uh, uh, right. Yeah. Then did you see Lead Belly? No. Never saw him? Never saw him. Oh. Pete? Yeah, I saw Pete a number of times. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so when you got to it, when you got to the village, who was around? Who were part of the crew? Who were you kind of like meeting at the diner afterwards and smoking cigarettes with? Well, Richie Havens. Right. Uh-huh. He was like, he's an interesting player, huh? Oh, he's marvelous player. Oh, my God. And he invented his own, his whole thing you know he uh, he invented his own tuning yeah. he plays mostly with his thumb over the neck right you know and and his time his yeah, right very, hand very yeah, fast but, but but breaks up the breaks down the beat and i mean he's brilliant and he was a big deal yeah he well you know i used to play guitar for him yeah uh when dino wasn't around there was a, a kid named dino who learned from richie and and played great where did richie learn he taught himself. Oh, yeah? Yeah. But that thumb over the top thing is very specific. I think Hendrix did it a little bit, too. Well, so did Gary Davis, but, yeah. but not across All of the four strings. strings. Yeah, or five <laughs> strings, yeah. So, okay, so it's Richie Havens and you. Uh-huh. Emmy and Lou Harris, Paul Siebel. And Emmy Lou Harris started down the village, huh? Well, I think she, I don't know that she started there, but uh, she might have started uh, in D.C. and came up to the village for a few years. And this is mid-60s? Yeah. Who were the people that you would go watch, go out of your way to see no matter when they played? Gil Turner and Zaharia Malmoli. Uh-huh. Um, let's see. Oh, you know who we left out of the first wave of- who? Uh, uh, We left out Odetta. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I thought of that because I mentioned Zaharia's last name. She she just performed as Zaharia. And I, I once called Odetta by her whole name, and she said- you don't do that. That's too powerful, you know. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> What's Odetta's whole name? I'm, uh, she didn't want me to say. And you can't say it still. I love her. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so when did you, uh, you know, first start achieving, you know, success? How did it happen? Like, you know, when did you record? When did you start being recognized? Well, um, the first national act uh, to ask me to play with him was Tom Paxton. Uh-huh. And I played with him, and then it was back to the village. Opening, no, go, no, no. As his guitar as a, player, oh, I was okay. an accompanist. That's yeah. that was my whole thing. I didn't sing. Yeah, uh, you sing. I do now. Yeah, yeah. But back then, I didn't. I was I was guitar player for all the people that I most of the people I mentioned. You know, so Paxton's the the first guy. These he, are guys that play as well, though, right? You know, most of them. Yeah, but yeah. but I would I would add ornamentation and, mm-hmm. and solos and things. And and uh, when so he was the first guy that kind of. Uh, the first national one. act. I mean, yeah. you know, I mentioned Paul Siebel and yeah. Emmy Lou. I used to play guitar for them and for Richie and for yeah. anybody who'd let me. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, uh-huh. and so you tour with Paxton. But the big 
thing was probably I ran into uh, a guy named Donnie Brooks, who was a harmonica player. Yeah. Introduced me to a pal of his named, uh, well, eventually named Jerry Jeff Walker. Right. And um, Jerry Jeff was part of a jazz fusion rock band. Really? Yeah, uh, called um, Circus Maximus. Uh Uh-huh. Along with a great songwriter named uh, Gary White. The rest of the band hated Jerry Jeff's tunes. And I loved playing on them. You know, we met and we played together. So I used to drag them around. Was it primarily country? His stuff, yeah. yeah it was very country. Yeah. So, I, you know, Paul Colby might say, well, I'm looking for an opening act. I was not an act. Right. So, so I'd say, well, let me see if Jerry Jeff will do it, you know. And yeah, yeah. Bring Jerry Jeff. And then we used to go to uh, WBAI-FM. And this was a very important thing. Yeah. Uh, in Jerry's Jerry Jeff's career and mine because I became known through being Jerry Jeff's band. Right. And uh, we used to go up to WBAI, Radio Unnameable, Bob Fass. Uh-huh. It was an important show, and it went from midnight until. And what did you do up there? Well, we played. Uh, Live. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, uh, I think it was um, someone else had brought me up there. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, so I would dr- get Jerry Jeff to come. Uh, when I could. Right. And the two of us would go up there and we'd play. And Bob Fast fell in love with Mr. Butch Angles. And he, he recorded it three separate times and, and put him on a tape loop. And if we weren't there, he'd play that several times a night. Your version of it? Not mine, Jerry Jeff. Jerry Jeff. Jeff. Is that his song? Yeah, he, he wrote, wrote it. He wrote that song. He absolutely wrote it, yeah. Some people uh, have asked me, who really wrote it? He wrote it. Yeah? Yeah. That's a, like, that is one of those songs that yeah. like, everybody knows. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, great song. And um, did you play on the uh, the original recording of it? Yeah, yeah. You want the story? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, there was a guy down in the village, uh, a publisher and and uh, manager, and doing a lot of things named David Wilkes. Uh huh. And I remember him taking me and Jerry Jeff to an airplane, uh, uh, a little Piper Cub, and we flew down to Memphis. Yeah. Um, the song was already out. Uh, before Jerry Jeff recorded it because um, at Jilly's Bar, which was where Sinatra would hang out, the piano player was a guy named Bobby Cole and he heard it on the late night radio. He figured, that's a great tune, I'll cover it. You know, he didn't Uh. know it wasn't out. So he recorded it for Date Records and Jerry Jeff eventually signed with ATCO, which was a division of Atlantic. But he credited Jerry, right? I don't know, Mm. but I think he did. Yeah. But uh, the the only thing that a songwriter has that he can say about a song is he gets to pick the first person to record it. Right. After that, anybody can. Okay. And so so Bobby Cole put out the first recording without Jerry Jeff knowing. Well, he assumed it had already been out. Yeah. So, so David Wilkes, Jerry Jeff, and I flew down to Memphis where a brilliant engineer, a brilliant man, he... Um, the guy who invented faders yeah. was engineering, uh, was producing and engineering the session. And okay. it, the Dixie Flyers were the were the band. Okay, and they were having a difficult time with it uh, because it kept sounding like a Viennese waltz. Uh-huh. Yeah, oh, like the groove. And I really wanted to be in the studio. Yeah, and after a while, I was in tears. Really? I, I I'm a little embarrassed, but yeah. it's the truth. And You're sitting in the booth? I'm sitting in the booth because he didn't want some kid he never heard of. And finally- The engineer. Yeah, uh, the engineer and producer, Tom Dowd. Okay, there Who you go. also was 
involved in the Manhattan Project, just so you know how intelligent Tom Dowd was. Okay. So, But uh, Jerry Jeff didn't say, I want the kid? No, after a while, Tom Dowd said, let's put the kid in. Okay. Uh, there was a woman who was playing 12-string, and he said, let him play your 12-string. And so I had a part. Yeah. And I played, my part was in 6-8, not 3-4. Mm-hmm. And that did it. That did it? That did it. You were the, first, the key. Yeah. I, I, I think I was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny because, like, Jerry Jeff Walker is one of these guys I had to come back around to, thanks to my buddy Dan over at Gimme Gimme Records. Like, like, because when I grew up, it was up against the wall, Redneck Mothers. That was the song. That was later. That was I much know, later. it was much later, but, yeah. like, it's, like, like not unlike you, you know, as a guy my age who missed the 60s, really. Yeah. So anything I got, I had to pick up from the rubble, uh-huh. and, that, and I'm still doing it. Uh-huh. Like, you know, I'm still like, you know, that guy was that guy? You know, uh-huh. like yeah. like right now, like you're the guy that was on the 12-string? But then you you go on. So I imagine that session, how does it pick up for, like, because you played with fucking everybody of that era. And I don't know how that works. See, my, my false assumption is that, you know, because, you know, you play with uh, you know, the, the, most of the Grateful Dead's on, what, two or three of your records. Yeah. And that you know, and then you, you, with Ronstadt, who I know, I, I just, I just recently, within the last six months, got the uh, first two Stone Ponies records, uh-huh. which I love. Yeah, like great. to hear her sing like that. Oh, she's such a great singer. And then, but you, did you have that moment though when you you listen to Stone Ponies and you're like, she's above and beyond this. That there's something transcendent that we're, we you can feel that it hasn't been realized yet. That she was a great singer, but folk almost held her back in a way somehow. No. i just i you know here's the thing yeah i live in the moment i know and that's all i wanted was to live in the moment i heard her and she moved me she was just just with the stone ponies yeah she used to play the bitter end yeah and and if you she talks about this in her uh uh autobiography Uh one night she was there after different drum she, she released a number of tunes um uh, High Muddy Waters was one of them. You know, yeah. And she sang it. it. It was just great. But yeah. the, but after Different Drum, nothing did anything. Uh-huh. So one night when she was at the bitter end, I got her and dragged her to the apartment house where I lived and also Gary White and Jerry Jeff lived. And I rounded up Paul Siebel and Gary White and me and Linda. And I, uh, I was not a songwriter or singer at the yeah. time. I was everybody's guitar player. Right. So they sang her songs, and her next album was mostly Gary White and Paul Siebel songs, and her the the hit that restarted her career was Long, Long Time, which Gary White sang to her that night. Really? So if I'd sit in with her, she'd introduce me as uh, somebody who helped restart her career, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. over-the-top stuff, but it was, I loved it. But uh, that was a moment. Uh, that you were like, come on. But there was more to that night. Yeah. Um, that night when she decided to go back to her hotel, she ran into Jerry Jeff in the hallway and he was on his way uptown for God knows what. Right. And they shared a cab. Yeah. And he told her that she she had to hear this song um, that um, the, uh, the McGarrigal sisters ha- had written and sang, Heart Like a Wheel. Yeah. Which is one of her favorites ever. And that was a huge hit too, so... So there so it was you a momentous, It was a momentous night. It's interesting that, like, I imagine, you know, for me, but I don't know for you, because you, you seem to, uh, you know, not uh, to have the the same sort of, um, 
you know, I romanticize, you know, groups of people and times and eras. But I mean, like in retrospect, to be at the sort of like the pivotal juncture of these things and making these kind of impulsive decisions that that have a a, a kind of uh, ripple effect uh-huh. must be sort of interesting and and exciting. Or you... I loved playing guitar with these guys. <laughs> You're not nostalgic. No, <laughs> I, I loved playing guitar with these guys, and I wanted. I wanted to do it as much as I could. I, I would get Jerry Jeff and Paul Siebel yeah. booked at the Folklore Center to do a concert so I could play guitar with them. And uh, f- with Siebel, I got Siebel one of those, and uh, I got I had just done an album with Paxton. Yeah. So I got the producer um, to come down and listen to Paul. Uh, Peter Siegel was his name. Yeah. And uh, he was an excellent producer. And so Paul got a, 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 a contract. Uh-huh. The, you know, that, I, it was a smaller business then too, huh? I mean, it was intimate. Like, the, you know, you, there was- Not as small as, as it is today. <laughs> well, I know recording in general, I guess, but it just seemed like there was, there was more, uh, maybe I'm wrong. It just seemed like there was a community, you know, that there were these, you know, you go to a certain city and then, you know, people were hungry for new al- new talent uh-huh. and everybody was sort of around. You know, it, it doesn't seem that, maybe it works that way still, I don't know. Well, one of the things that the record companies did is they were editors because everybody wanted to make a record. Right. And the recording stu- uh, studios didn't record everybody. Right. So, so they, you know, today the the you have to be on YouTube, right. along with how many million others? Right, anybody can do it. Yeah, but to to get known, if you're really good, I mean, how do you stick out in YouTube? It yeah. ain't easy. No, I think it's harder today. But when, so you 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 eventually you played with Richie Havens. Well, I played with Richie Havens, I think, before I ever met Jerry Jeff. Even. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I I'm just looking at some of the people you worked with, Al Cooper. Al, I didn't meet till later. Right. Yeah. He's a character, huh? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I and I really love him. Good producer. Yeah. Good, and yeah. You can't write the the history of rock and roll without Al Cooper. Sure, like yeah. a Rolling Stone, right? Yeah. Yeah. That organ. Yeah. Well, with that and uh, the Blues Project and uh, uh, what was the name of that great horn band he founded? Uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, even before that, he wrote a song uh, that Gary Lewis and the Playboys recorded, I think. Or was it Short Shorts? He wrote one of those uh, pop things. You know, He was one of the kids who, like Paul Simon was also, who lived in the uh, publishing buildings. Uh-huh. There, there were two buildings in New York. One, the most famous was the Brill Building, right. but there was another one, too. Yeah. And, and there were kids who would hang out there and do whatever they could because they wanted, they wanted to write to, songs. Yeah. Paul Simon was doing that. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, did yeah. you know him? Did you? They no. were. They had already come and no, gone. No, I met. Huh? I met him much later. Uh, I want to talk about the dead. Yeah, because you seem to, you know, jive with those dudes. I mean, they played on your record. Yeah, and you played with them. Yep. Yeah. What was that? Uh, what were they? What was the vibe there? Because I noticed in your playing, and I, when I listen to stuff, that it seems like you guys were able to really, and also the band too. Uh, yeah. Um, to find this this space, there's a space to it that you you know you kind of like you're not filling up every hole. You're letting things sit. There's a groove uh, that that you know I think people are trying to get back to a little now. But there's something about like I never really put it all together until I it was a few years ago. And you know Eric Clapton had you know there were two there there when Jimi Hendrix went to England. 
a lot of the rock guys were like, well, it's done. It's over. Yeah. But for some reason, when the band's first record out, Eric Clapton said, it's over. Mm-hmm. That, you know, they've achieved, you know, this perfection that I'm never going to achieve. And for years, I couldn't figure out what that is. And it's really about the space. I think you're right. Yeah, I think so. The band was so soulful. I mean, for my taste is, if it's not soulful, if it doesn't strike me as soulful, I got no time for it. Uh And uh, the band was very, very soulful, and I loved their records, and I used to run into them in later years everywhere. Really? Yeah, I'd run into them at hotels. Well, that's understandable. Gigs, yeah, yeah, sure. um, Truck stops. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) You just kept running into them? Just kept running into them, and... and, um, and I, I, I really liked them. Did you ever play with any of them? Sure. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, Danko, I love Rick Danko. Well, Danko was my best friend in the band. Uh, we were at um, uh, the Chateau Marmont. I uh-huh. was staying there. I, I forget why. Yeah. And I'm walking around the grounds for some reason, and I bump into Danko, and he says, oh, thank God. <laughs> He says, I got to do this Ringo Starr album, and he wants me to play fiddle. Uh-huh. Will you play fiddle with me? <laughs> well, I don't, have, I don't remember if I had a fiddle with me or not, actually. I said, okay. So that got me on a, a ring. We were trying to hide behind each other because we were both pretty terrible fiddlers. <laughs> uh, and, and uh, you know, so I got a, that was the first of the Ringo Starr albums I played on. Danko seemed like he was a pretty funny guy. He was a sweetheart. He was really wonderful. And, uh, um, and so was Levon. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever go up there to Woodstock and oh, hang sure. out? Oh, sure. No, not till later years. Yeah. You know, the problem was it was too fashionable to do that. Uh-huh. And I have always been, and I don't think it's necessarily a good thing, Yeah. militantly anti-fashion. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so- Didn't want to be trendy? Didn't want to seem like you were part of the gang? I Yeah, I just wanted to find a way to do things myself, you know? Uh-huh. You know, and you were talking about how I was- playing in the folk thing yeah but i wasn't playing that much folk music i played as much rock and roll on the acoustic guitar as i did folk music i played all kinds of different music and uh you know it was a whole different thing i always said if whatever if what i do ever becomes popular yeah uh, i got a corner on the market yeah (laughs) you're the only guy doing it i'm the only guy doing it but like but uh like when you play with um like Danko, like just struck me like such a, a great voice and such like a, a fun spirit. Like when you talk about fun, like you know that in, in the folk stuff and in that the sort of like you know because like I'm thinking about that that there there's an ecstatic sort of you know communal feeling to that music. I guess it exists like with any band that has popularity, but but there seems to be something simple and 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 pure about folk music in a weird way. Well, maybe, I mean, I never really thought of myself as a folk singer. Right. But you were there and you, you But said I was that. there. I came out of the folk clubs, absolutely. Yeah. But I was asked to, to give a, a keynote speech a couple of years ago yeah. to the Folk Alliance. And uh, so I thought about it and I decided to talk about the difference between folk music and Americana. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. The, the term Americana didn't exist when I was first out there. That's sort of now. There's yeah. a bit of that going on now. So lay it on me. So Help me folk out. music is music that has been or is being played where there's no chance of money changing hands. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, that's true. 
It, but define it. So you mean it's done like you know at social events or gatherings or uh, or or at work or in prisons or on ships uh-huh. or you know it's 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 a personal no, thing. It's a nobody's way. getting paid for it. Uh huh. So uh, and Americana music is music that kind of sounds like that, but it's written for profit. <laughs> okay. And I I, I had uh, uh, T-shirts printed up, fifty of them, saying the David Bromberg Quintet. Making Americana Great Again. <laughs> <laughs> that's for the new record? No, it's just for the hell of it. So you, didn't, you consider yourself a rock musician all the time? I don't know. I mean, I played on rock records, certainly. Country records? Country, I played on some country records. I played on all kinds of How records. Many, what instruments do you play, all of them? I'm really a guitar player. I can play a little mandolin. Uh, I play a little dobro. I can play a tiny bit of fiddle. Uh, you know, I, I can mess around with a few. I used to play a little banjo. I can mess around with a lot of different instruments. So, you know, in your career, you know, you put out like 20 of your own records almost. And, you know, you played with a very eclectic bunch of people. But, like, what I'm gathering, though, is that as a, you know, I mean, you played with, Link Ray in his country phase. (laughs) And what I'm gathering, though, is that, like, usually, unless you start with somebody or you have a friendship, like, with Rick or Linda or Jerry Jeff, Uh that, you know, you're going in to do the job. And you don't, you know, you don't necessarily end up becoming pals with with whoever's there, no matter how... So, like, it's... And I I know that in my heart, but, like, for some reason, I I still want to know that, like, um, that maybe, you know... You and, and, and David Amram, uh-huh. you know, we're buddies. Yeah, we're friends. You are. We were, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we are. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was sort of an interesting kind of beatnik legacy. Very interesting yeah. man. Yeah. And he does music that I wouldn't necessarily think that was your music. No. But you found a way in. Yeah. I'm on a couple of his records. And, yeah. And we've played together on other people's records. Yeah. And like, if but with someone like Link Ray, do you have uh, impressions uh, like like when you show up for work, you know, with Link Ray, who at that point I imagine is in, in his more country mode as opposed to you know breaking apart amps uh, with that sound. Yeah. You know what what do you walk in with? I mean, what do you what do you? Okay, um, in order to talk about Link Ray, I have to tell you about uh, Tommy K. Okay, Thomas Jefferson K. Okay, he was a producer, and uh, he never paid scale. Uh, he underpaid everybody, mm-hmm. but it was work in getting on records. So I did a lot of records with him, and he and he produced the Link Ray record that I played on, and uh, also I played on a Wilbert Harrison record, the guy who wrote Kansas City. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I also played on the very last hit that Jay and the Americans had. And it was a Tommy K record. And uh, he produced a lot of records for Mercury, which was doing kind of a scam back then. Uh-huh. They would get a band and they would put... To, uh, no, not a band. They, they would get studio musicians to play a pop tune. And if it was a hit, somebody put together a band by that name. Mm-hmm. If it was a real band and they did a record, they'd print up a lot of them and then delete it from their catalog so that they wouldn't have to pay any royalties. I mean, it was it, yeah. it was a whole weird thing. But to explain Tommy K to you, Tommy K is produced an album with Doctor John, John Hammond. I just got that album, and um, Michael Bloomfield. Yeah, it's terrible. 
Yeah, it's pretty bad. How could anybody take those three guys and, and make a up. terrible album? <laughs> yeah. So I, eventually I stopped doing records with, with him, doing dates, because I started getting scale, double scale, triple scale. I was, yeah. I was in demand. Yeah. And uh, so he calls me one day and he says, listen, I got a session. You, uh, I said, I don't know. I, I, I think I might be busy that day, yeah. Tommy. He said, no, 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 <laughs> yeah. you got to play this one. Yeah. I said, okay, why do I have to play this one? Yeah. He said, well, the other guitar players are Clapton. Uh-huh. I said, okay, I guess I got to play this one. Yeah. So Were you a Clapton fan? Yeah, sure. He's a great, great yeah. player. Yeah. So I, uh, um, I get to the studio and I see this other guitar player setting up. Yeah. And I go up to Tommy. I say, Tommy, that's not Clapton. He says, I know, but he looks just like him, doesn't he? <laughs> So you didn't get to play with Eric Clapton? No, no, no. It was a typical Tommy came uh-huh. over. But you played with Link Wright. Yeah. And uh, what was your impression of him? It was so long ago. I thought he was cool, though. Yeah. Yeah. And this was, but he wasn't playing that. Uh, it was, was it on a country record or was it on a dirty record? I don't even remember Really? Anymore. So yeah. that's, that's where it goes. It was, uh, do you realize how long ago that was? That was more than 50 years okay. ago. Okay. All right. I, I guess, yeah, you're right. Well, th- I, did you, and you recorded with Dylan as well? Yeah. Yeah. And do you remember that? Yes. Oh yeah. Well, Why? but not that clearly the first recordings. What'd you do? Which record? The first record that I played on with him was, uh, um, self-portrait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that record. Yeah? Yeah. He called me up, and I was, at first I thought it was somebody pulling my leg. Right. And he said, uh, I'm, I'd like you to, I want to check out the studio. Will you check this, come with me and check out the studio. Really? Out of nowhere? You'd met him before? Or? I, I had shook his hand when he came <laughs> to the uh, uh, the club where Jerry Jeff was playing, right. and I was accompanying him, and I never thought he paid any attention to me. Sure. So... Uh, of course, later I learned that um, he knew the studio very, very well. Oh, really? It was yeah. just sort of, he was checking you out? Yeah. Yeah. So we went in and, and, and it was the way I love to work. Yeah. No rehearsal. This is it. Boom. Yeah. And so I, I had a good time. I can tell you a great story. What? Well, years later in, in the 90s, uh, and I was not performing at all. You know, I stopped performing for 22 years. I know. I was going to ask you about that. We'll, we'll get to it. Yeah. So... Uh, um, I did a couple of shows here and there, and I did one uh, at the bottom line. I used to play their anniversary every yeah. year, so I kept doing that from time to time. And one of those times, um, uh, Neil Young was playing uh, at the Beacon in New uh-huh. York, and Bob went to that, and they both came down to hear me. And uh, evidently, Neil said to Bob, you ought to have this guy produce you. So Bob asked me to produce him. Uh, he thought it was a good idea, I guess. Yeah. And um, so I, I produced a bunch of uh, tunes. Uh, two of them have been released. I think eventually they may all get released, but who knows? Which like on which record? What period are we talking about? Um, well, it was in the '90s, but it was released a little later on one of the bootleg albums. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. It was the one that was four, no, three discs. Yeah, yeah. But it was released as two discs, and you paid extra for the third. Uh huh. And um, so the tunes were Miss the Mississippi and You, which is on the first or second. And the first tune on the third CD, if you bought it, was uh, Duncan and Brady. And that was one Had you done a lot of production previous? I always produced myself. Yeah. I produced Carly Simon's demo. Uh-huh. I produced uh, Johnny Shine's. Um, but mostly I, I, I had produced myself. 
Yeah, and what was that like working with him as a producer? Oh, it was fun. Yeah. I mean, it, we had a very good relationship. We'd known each other for a very long time. From that day you went to the studio? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you stayed in touch? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a time when we would hang out together in the village. Um, yeah. Anyhow, I really should have told this to, to Bob before I tell it to you. I've never told him this because I keep forgetting. Yeah. But I got to tell you this story. Okay. My wife was the only white person in a, in a church choir uh-huh. in Chicago. Yeah. We were living in Chicago. And I asked the, the choir to come in and sing on uh, uh, a few of the tunes that we were recording. With Bob. Yeah. Yeah. They, they never heard of Bob Dylan. Yeah. They, you know. What year are we talking? 95, they I think. They probably heard of him. No. Uh-huh. Absolutely not. Huh. They, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, a very important record store in Chicago called Out of the Past. Uh-huh. And um, I was there once and I found a, a, a Bob Dylan, um, what do you call it, pirate record? Yeah. You know? Bootleg. Yeah, bootleg. You know, they make up the prices when you bring it to them. Yeah. I, I brought it to them. They had no idea who it was either. And they did a, a buck. <laughs> really? It was the only thing in there that was a buck. There was the only record store, which was the size of a, a airplane hangar, uh-huh. where there are no Beatles records. Uh-huh. You know, so, yeah. What right. records do they have? Uh, every black artist you ever heard of. Right. And uh, people come from all over all over the world to that place. It's oh, a great okay. record It's store. still there? Yeah. As far as I know, all out right, of so the you past. Br- you bring the choir in. So I bring the choir in, uh, and Nancy tells me later... Um, they were at one end of the studio and Bob was in the vocal booth at another and he was doing a tune that I actually ended up recording twice called Nobody's Fault But Mine, which is a, a church tune. Mm-hmm. And um, the first time I recorded it was during the famous disco scare. Uh-huh. And so I recorded a disco version and I hadn't yet done the second version. The disco scare? Yeah. Well, what else was it? <laughs> and uh, so Bob has this and for some reason he wanted to record a lot of my tunes or tunes that I'd recorded. And um, he's in the the uh, the booth trying to get a groove that's not that one. Yeah. And it took him some time. He's working on it, you know. And uh, Nancy told me later that that uh, they had a little prayer. Uh, <laughs> let's let's pray for this man. And and they prayed, dear Lord, please help this man find whatever it is he's looking for. And with a quickness. <laughs> I, I'm not sure it worked. <laughs> in, in the big picture, I'm not sure it worked. <laughs> but maybe that day it did. That day it did, yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Yeah. And Ringo Starr, when you work with him, did you, did you get to hang out with him or did you talk to him? Or was it, it always seems like there's a lot of people on his records. He told me some things that made me feel very good. Oh, yeah? He told me that um, John Lennon had sat the other three guys down and made them listen to my first album from start to finish. Really? Yeah. I wish I'd known that before. That's uh, that's one of those great moments in life. Tell me about it. Oh. Yeah, that was very nice. So, all right, so you put out all these records on your own, and how's, you, how's your following? When you go out and play, do you get a, a nice group? Amazingly enough, I do. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I mean, I'm able to play places that people who had hit records, which I never did. Yeah can't play so i'm i'm very 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 lucky do you find that there are um people that you would uh, maybe see yourself hanging out with are they your age i mean what is it like are they you know uh the the crew from the 60s i mean who who goes do you notice um there are occasionally some younger people but they're mostly people uh my age uh-huh they are yeah. uh but there uh, recently we've seen more and more young people but you know for me 
I am who I am. I am my age. I'm 71. Yeah. And and that's de- that's not a good thing in uh, in this business. You know, I'm old news. I don't know. The Stones just put out a blues record. So did I. <laughs> <laughs> it's good too, man. The record's good. I play. I've been playing along with it. Like I, because uh, I, I like the groove. You know, I'm proud of it. Yeah, it's great. That's with my the, band on it too. It's what's it called again? The uh, the blues, the whole blues, nothing and nothing but, but the blues. You, yeah, that's your band. That's your touring band on there. Yeah, it's tricky with the blues, isn't it? Because the blues is not really owned by anybody. Right. So when you show up for them. You know, it's on you to make it your own, and it's it's a tricky thing. It's a very tricky thing because um, there's something that happens to all kinds of music where it ossifies, and there are people who say uh, in uh, Dixieland jazz that you can't play high society yet without playing that one clarinet part. Right. You can't play uh, a bluegrass tune without Rolls Scruggs break, uh-huh. and there are people that, who are that way about the blues, and... Uh, um, well, the interesting thing about it is that because, like, somebody like me can play it, like, it's everybody's music in a way. Yeah. And, you know, the structure of it has been sort of worn down and over-familiarized. Like, you know, like any bar band can make their way through a blues tune, you know, give or take. Yeah. Right? Okay. So, how do you make it special? You know, what defines that? It has to be what's what you've got to be, what you bring to it. Exactly. Not what you do to it. Right. What you bring to it. Yeah. Yeah. That was the interesting thing about your record and also about the Stones records is like, you know, those songs are for everybody. You know, you know, we, you know, we, we're familiar with the song, but what's going to make you go like, I like this version. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's interesting. Well, I discovered something about uh, blues guitar playing in church. Uh-huh. Um, you go to church? I, I, I used to bring the Reverend to church. Right. And it was the place on the planet where I felt the most welcome mm-hmm. and the most at home. Ah. So I would check out a few other churches now oh, and yeah. then. Yeah. Only, only African-American churches. The white churches, I didn't feel welcome. Uh-huh. Um, and I started to really dig some preachers. And then I realized something listening to B.B. King and Albert yeah. King. Yeah. If you listen to B.B., yeah. He said that the tone that he gets is a, an attempt to uh, duplicate uh, Lonnie Johnson's mm-hmm. sound on the acoustic guitar, uh-huh. on the electric. Yeah. And you can hear this yeah. if you listen to Lonnie and you listen to BB. Yeah. His choice of notes is his own, and it's brilliant. Yeah. His phrasing is a preacher's phrasing. And that's the difference between the white blues players and the black blues players, huh. is the phrasing. Because the preachers will be talking to you and then at some point they will pause to make you really want to hear what they're going to say next ah and and you do that that's what bb does on the guitar see like that what you just told me yeah. is going is i'm going to have that in my head now well uh, while you were talking you, you you reminded me of something else that i think i i figured out uh, yeah um when i first heard bebop mm-hmm. i didn't care for it at all it wasn't until I heard Charlie Parker that I that I realized this stuff is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And Charlie Parker, of course, is the source. He's what everybody was trying to sound like. If you listen to Charlie Parker, he's an extraordinarily melodic player. He plays a thread. Yeah. The guy, uh, but 
in the course of playing that thread, he picks some notes that alter chords uh-huh. and creates different and unusual chords, if you right. think of it as chordable. And all these people I listened to and didn't like, they really understood these chords he was doing, and they would play, instead of in a line, they'd play vertically. They'd play one chord to another chord to another right. chord, right. and it wasn't tied together. Right. Yeah, so, so that, who cares? Right. Well, no, you're talking about the lyricism. <laughs> he was a melodic player. He was yeah. a blues player, and he played gorgeous melodies. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why he was great, and these other guys were kind of not. When you're playing your best, the music comes from somewhere else. You're concentrating so hard that you cease concentrating, Yeah. and the music seems to flow through you and come out your fingers. You relax. Open up. It just know. it just comes from someplace and it it works you right. When I was about twenty three or so and I was playing in the village, that's when I did all these sessions and that's yeah. when I was at my best. And I discovered the first concert that I did where I actually sang. I discovered when I finished the first solo that I did in this performance that I couldn't find the English language. I couldn't speak English. Huh. I didn't know what the words you're, were. You're, I didn't know what any English words were. And it took me a while. I had to play through another and, and withdraw my mind and and find the lyrics. Uh-huh. And You were speaking guitar. So I, was, the, the, I was speaking music. <laughs> yeah, the, the, you couldn't get back. Right. <laughs> so I, I learned after a while, and yeah. I didn't learn it that night. I mean, I knew I had to, to do this, but yeah. I, I wasn't able to do it all that night. Yeah. Uh, to to when I could see the end of a solo coming up about eight twelve bars away, yeah, I would also see what I was going to play then, draw my mind out of the the music, let my fingers do it, yeah. and and try and remember lyrics. Uh huh. Oh, so you you had to be conscious that you were going to make the jump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why did you quit? I got burnt out, and I was too stupid to know I was burnt out. You know, but you never like you know you're hanging around a lot of hardcore people. You don't seem like a druggy sort. No, well, I, 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 but I'm also not an angel. Yeah. You know, and I had my moments. Yeah, but what it was was I was on the road at one point for two years without being home for two weeks. On doing your own shit. Yeah. Yeah. With my own band. Yeah. And and I discovered when I was home that I wasn't practicing, I wasn't writing, and I wasn't jamming. There was, there's nothing of a musician there. Yeah. And I didn't want to be one of these guys who drags himself onto the stage, does a bitter imitation of something he used to love. Uh-huh. So I looked for another way to live my life. And what was that? Violins. I studied violin making and violin identification. And, uh, and I love it. I, I really like being able to pick up a violin. You know, if your guitar says Fender or yeah. Gibson on it, the chances are it was made in uh, uh, Fullerton or or wherever or Nashville, I guess. Gibson Early on, making. yeah. Uh, still, but if you your violin says Stradivarius, the odds are not really that he ever saw the thing. Yeah, you know. So so that doesn't make it a bad violin. Who made it? Yeah. You, you have know? to. You have to know. It's like fine painting. You have to know the, the chisel strokes and 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 the, the perfilling materials. So, so you went full nerd rabbit hole on violins. I went full nerd rabbit hole on violins. <laughs> and you can make a violin. I guess I could. I haven't touched edge tools since I graduated from school. Oh, so it was more about my uh, aim was always in identification. Do you repair? 
Uh, no. No? Just identification? Just identification. I, I also uh, am about to... I, I'm... I collected violins that were made in the United States. But you're not, like, you, to, uh, in your own admission, you're not a great violin player. No. You just like violins. Yeah. Huh. I, I just like the uh, the instruments, and I, I, I think I have a little bit of understanding of them. What uh, was the fascination with that? Was that a, always a thing? Did it come to you later? I mean, violin, it's very specific. What about I, the it violin? It fascinated me that somebody would look at your violin that said Stradivarius in it and say, no, this was uh, made in Austria in the uh, 1820s by, uh, oh, okay. you know. Yeah. And I wanted to be able to do that. <laughs> With violins. With violins. And I actually made a place for myself in the violin world by collecting violins made in the United States, which everyone told me there were no good ones. Uh-huh. And in thinking about that, I, I couldn't understand. I, I don't think Americans are genetically inferior to Europeans. Yeah. So why shouldn't they be as good? Well, in truth, they are. But there's also tons and tons of really bad ones. Yeah. So, so I, you know. Well, I, I guess I'm, the, I'm told I'm the expert on violence made in the United States. I have 263 of them in my collection. And the Library of Congress is raising the funds to buy a third of the collection. I'm going to donate the rest. Okay. Yeah. Now, now that you're back in the blues band. Yeah. <laughs> I got a great fiddler in the band, too. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That's an interesting idea. You know, when you were saying that that road and not practicing and, and not, you know, taking that time for yourself to engage in, in creativity in a way, that that's what really wore a lot of dudes down. You yeah, know. sure it did. Like it killed a lot of guys. Well, the hardest thing is ha getting the energy together night after night after night to be wonderful, yeah. you know, or whatever the hell you have to be. Yeah. You know, you got to put on the show. Put on the show. Uh, and t talking about blues, you know, Albert King, I believe, had a rather unique way of doing it. I think after having seen him a few times that if he was having trouble getting the energy together, he would managed to become furious at one of the guys in this band and kick him off the stage and play the rest of the set in a cold fury. And everybody in the band understood this was going to happen. Because he was just tired. Because he, he couldn't work up another way to have the energy uh -huh. to deliver. That's interesting. And you got to deliver night after night after night. You got diarrhea, it doesn't matter. Deliver. Yeah. You know, whatever's People going pay for on. The ticket. That's right. You, and, and they don't want to hear that tonight you don't quite have it. What, how much experience did you have in actually backing uh, blues guys? Not a whole lot. Yeah. 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 Although, I, I mean, you're thinking electric blues. I mean, Mississippi John Hurt and I spent two weeks in dressing rooms just playing with each other. That was a ball. I, I was uh, accompanying a singer named Jerry Moore, and we were in Philadelphia opening for John Hurt. And, uh -huh. and, we, and John and I just played together backstage and then he invited me to go with him to uh the philadelphia folk festival and play with him mm -hmm. and i'm very proud that i had the good sense to say thank you so much i can't do it why nobody would want to hear me play <laughs> on top of mississippi john Hurt. he's just he's a solo guy yeah, they they wanted to hear what he did. I mean, uh, there was a similar thing when when I produced a record of Johnny Shines. Uh -huh. I suspect that all the people who bought it probably hated it. Really? Yeah, because I produced it the way I produced myself. I used horns. I used backup singers. I used all kind of piano. I used all kinds of stuff. 
And he said twice before he died that it was his favorite album that he did. And I think the reason is that I didn't make him sit on a bale of hay in overalls with a red bandana, uh-huh. which is what everybody wanted. They wanted to hear him sitting on that bale of hay uh-huh. with a red bandana. Yeah, but you took it up the next level. Well, I don't know if I added took it. some I, stuff. I, I did. I did what I would do for myself. I did for him. Yeah, and I think that the probably the people who asked me to do it were terribly disappointed. <laughs> really, but I didn't realize that till years. But later. he loved it. He loved it. So fuck it. Yeah. Great talking to you, David. Great talking to you, man. You feel good? I feel very good. I, I've admired your interviews. I think you're the best. So oh. I'm very, very proud to be doing this. And I'm very happy you came out. Good luck with the tour and the record. Thank you. That's it. That was me and uh, Mr. Bromberg. Mr. Bromberg. Also go to WTFPod.com to check out my upcoming tour dates. Get on the mailing list buy a poster, whatever you got to do. I believe I'll play some guitar. I believe I will. Berlin.